May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. What are we to make of this season? Of the coming of Christ, of waiting for the celebration, the nativity, preparing our hearts. As Christians who observe or at least acknowledge it as Advent, the problem for us is that we're caught. When we gather here this morning, as we've done, to share this journey of Advent, we will soon in a little while, and I know some of you hope it's sooner than others, we'll be making our way out the door. And we'll return to our cars, and we'll turn on the radio, and find on the Christian music stations these words, have a holly jolly Christmas, it's the best time of the year. Our culture declares that it is Christmas, while the church announces that it is Advent. And this can serve, if you please, as a metaphor for the real tension that we experience every day in our lives of being caught. Robert referenced it last week when he noted, as theologians like to say, we live between the now and the not yet. In the light of Luke's gospel, there's another way of looking at this period between the now and the not yet. Luke quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, there's a promise of salvation. Parts of the evangelical church, in their zeal to promulgate the gospel and make converts, misrepresented the message. They didn't mean to deceive, but in their sincerity, they made a false promise. With an overarching statement in their presentation of the gospel, they asserted, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Yet I would suggest to you that we follow the life of John the Baptist, and when he is in prison and realizes the Roman soldiers are not there to set him free, but to take his head, he might have something else to say about that. Or tell that to the Apostle Paul, who was shipwrecked or beaten or imprisoned. Or tell that to our fellow Anglicans today in northern Nigeria, who suffer mercilessly at the hands of those about them. Those well-meaning people who love Jesus, took the cultural concept of the American dream and sought to baptize it in the gospel. Many of the so-called televangelists are guilty of the same thing. I am not saying there is no promise. It's there in our text. Words the writer quotes from Isaiah, all shall see. But what we have to realize is that we have not yet fully seen. The incarnation, the nativity of Jesus, the life of Jesus, his death and resurrection, the ascension and Pentecost, together form the beginning, not the end. We are caught then between the inauguration and the parousia, the coming of Christ. 
The late John Wimber used to like to illustrate this by using two events from World War II. He would talk about June 6, 1944, which was D-Day. And in that moment of that invasion from the European troops and American troops, the tide against the German occupation was turned. But it was not until May 8, 1945, that victory could be declared. And between those two dates, the battles continued. The multitude of soldiers that were wounded and killed is almost unimaginable. And this is where we are as Christians, caught between the inauguration and the parousia. When the prophet Isaiah declared that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. When he says all flesh, he's including you and me. He's including Gentiles along with the Jews. But he does not mean that they'll see the inauguration. He's talking about seeing the fulfillment, the new heavens and the new earth, when death is swallowed up in victory. Julian of Norwich, the 14th century mystic, caught the essence of this in her famous line, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So on this morning, December 5th, 2021, you and I are living before the shall. Robert called this series of Advent the divine disruption. And in today's gospel, the divine disruption was not an event, but a person. It was none other than John the Baptist. The eccentric, strangely dressed, oddly dieted man. Perhaps you have sought to picture him in your own mind's eyes, dressed in garments of camel hair and eating honey and locusts, whether those are literal bugs or pods from a plant, as some scholars assert. I prefer to think that there's a leg quivering there in his beard, still covered with honey. <laughs> you can hear him, if you think about it, loudly proclaiming his message. Perhaps you might wonder what it would be like to have seen him, to have listened to him preach his message. There he is, among his own people. He is God's interruption for the moment. And if we are willing to listen in this season of Advent, he too can become God's disruption for us. In the liturgy of St. John of Chrysostom, which is used throughout the world in Orthodox churches, as the epistle lesson is about to be read, and again as they're about to read the gospel, the people hear these words, let us be attentive. So let us, as Anglicans, as members of the body of believers, let us attend this Advent season. Let us attend by remembering and responding to the ongoing call of Jesus to us. Israel, as the people of God, so often forgot. We see it over and over again in their history. And they are challenged and called again and again to remember and to respond, to recenter themselves in the truth of the covenant relationship that they have with Yahweh. And I too find myself forgetting. And if you're honest at times, so do you. So there's some things that I want to suggest to you 
that we must remember in this Advent season. One is that we need to remember we need the message of salvation. Now, your bishop was here last month, Philip Jones, for Tony's ordination to the diaconate. And in his sermon for the ordination service, he made this assertion, and he's correct. He said, conversion is an ongoing process. And he said of himself, he needs this continual conversion. The Apostle Paul put it this way about himself in his letter to the church at Philippi, that he forgets what lies behind and strains toward what lies ahead. And he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is to realize in the midst of Advent that we must strip the message of the incarnation of all the accoutrements that culture adds to it until there is the raw facing of our own hearts it is to realize that I stand in need of conversion. I need Malachi's fire. I need Malachi's soap. That I need to find the grace of repentance and hear again this call to conversion to remember that we are on a journey toward God, that we needed the inauguration of salvation, and we continue to stand in need of the parousia, the final consummation of the age. So we live before the shall. All flesh shall see the salvation of God, and we're living before the shall. And in living before the shall, we must remember that we walk by faith and not by sight. This is the message over and over, as it were, from the Apostle Paul in his epistles. But it's for us to receive the words of the unknown author of the book of Hebrews, who wrote those words without faith, it is impossible to please God. And in this author's perhaps most famous chapter, what is often referenced as the Hall of Faith, it is easy to read those words of seeming victory obtained through the faith of those who went before us. It is comforting and energizing to read who through, the, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. And folks, that will get you on TV. TBN and TBN, they'll all be lining up at your door. But we are called to read the whole chapter. It's tempting to stop there and say, this is faith. But the writer goes on, how dare he? And he adds these words. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Folks, those things will not get you followers on Facebook or Twitter. Yet this is what the writer says is faith and to live by faith. Sometimes we're on the mountain, and sometimes we're in the valley. Now, we're only too well aware in the last few weeks and months that our friend Brad Cruz went through the valley of the shadow of death. 
but he sought to go through that valley walking by faith and not by sight. And like them of old and like Brad, we too are called to live by faith and not by sight. We live before the shall. And how shall we live? We live by faith and not by what we see around us. Living before the shall is also to remember that I am no one's savior. Realizing and owning that though there are times that we deeply are impacted by the suffering of another, we must remember that this is his or her own journey. We cannot rescue people. Simon Peter had to learn this lesson. In a post-resurrection appearance, after Jesus made a prophetic statement regarding Peter's death, he asks Jesus regarding the Apostle John, what about this man? And Jesus says to him, it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. The writer C.S. Lewis had to struggle with this reality in his own life. When his dearly beloved wife, Joy Davidman, was struck with cancer, he prayed for God to let him take her place as if he could do that. There is truly only one who can take our place. And in so doing, he, as the old hymn writer declares, took our sin and our sorrow and made them his very own. There is only one Savior, one Redeemer, and we must look to him and remember that he alone can save. Living before the shall then also means that I must remember that I have not arrived, that I'm not through following. Now this period of following, in ironic sense, though we're following, which implies moving somewhere, also means that we're waiting. And it's to realize that Jesus, too, is waiting. For Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15 these words, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection to him, that God may be all in all. And that folks, is when the fullness of salvation will come, when God is all in all. And in the meantime, we must remind ourselves that we're waiting, and Jesus is also waiting. This also means that we are to remember that while we're following, we're not following alone. We're not alone in our following. Jesus has promised us, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has promised that he would be present with us. Sometimes we feel as if God's not there, don't we, if we're honest? We wonder in this pandemic, all that we see happening in our world, where is God? There's two little boys named Timmy and, do I dare tell it? There's two little boys named Timmy and Johnny. They were giving their mother's fits, just driving her up the wall, and she didn't get them under control. And finally, in her desperation, she went to her priest. And her priest said, tell me about Timmy. And she told him about Timmy. He said, tell me about Johnny. She told him about Johnny. He thought for a moment. He said, okay, here's what you're going to do. Friday afternoon when school is out, you tell Johnny to go straight home 
and you tell Timmy to come straight to my office. So Friday afternoon came, Johnny headed home, Timmy nervously went to the priest's office. The administrator greeted him, she directed him to a chair and told him to sit. She didn't say another word to him. He's fidgeting, he's nervous, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Pretty soon, without a word, she motions to him, she takes him into the priest's office. There's a chair square at the front of the priest's desk, and the priest is sitting there working on papers, and Timmy sits down, and the priest he just keeps flipping through his papers and writing notes, and pretty soon the priest looks up, and he looks at Timmy, and he says, where's God? And Timmy begins to fidget, and he's looking around, and he doesn't say anything, and the priest leans a little bit over his desk, and he says, where's God? A little louder, and Timmy, he's really nervous now, and he's looking around, he's looking at his chair, and finally the priest slams his hand on his desk, and in a loud voice says, where's God? And with that, Timmy jumps up, and he runs out the door, and he heads for home as fast as his little legs will carry he runs in the house, he finds Johnny, pulls him in the closet and says, God's missing and they think we did it. <laughs> when I was a boy, some of you might be old enough to remember this, some of you aren't, but some of you will be. Are you old enough to remember this? Cars... In those days, automobiles that were family cars, sedans, only came with a bench seat. Look at me like I'm crazy. And when a young couple was in love, because there were no seatbelt laws in those days, she would sit right up against him. And I can remember being in the back seat, and my parents driving over there, and my parents would once in a while make a, there's a two-headed driver. And then they'd get married, that couple, and then a year or two later you'd see them and she'd be over in this seat and he'd be in his seat. And the question is, who moved? Folks, God is not moved. We're the ones who move. God has not left us. God has not forsaken us. God has not abandoned us. He is with us. In the depths of our suffering, he is with us. Many of you may recall Brad's Facebook post when he received the news of a poor prognosis and he asserted in that post and asked for prayer that it be so that he and his family would continue to follow Jesus. After reflecting on his words and the situation, though I never got to share this with him, I wrote these words. Somehow Jesus is with you. Yes, but perhaps more. It is that Jesus is suffering with you and dare I say in you, if it's true what Jesus said, I was sick and you visited me, then in your sickness, in your suffering, Jesus is touched. If it's true that when Saul was persecuting the people, he was also persecuting Jesus, for Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then Jesus in some mysterious way is with you and me, so united to us and we to him that he suffers again with us. And in the midst of our suffering, what are we to do? Follow him all the way. In moments of our seeming abandonment, when we found ourselves asking why and there is no answer, in the dereliction of intractable suffering, when the sky is silent, we follow all the way to death. And at the end, we do the same thing he did. We deposit ourselves into the Father's hands. And we do this in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead. We do this because we are living before the shall. 
We're living before the shall. So in the meantime, in the in-between time, in this living before the shall, it is easy then to want to fall into the temptation to seek to escape. But we must hear the prophet's call. We must hear the message of John the Baptist. We must hear the message of Isaiah. We must hear the message of Malachi. And in our living before the shall, we must resist the temptation to seek to escape and hear the call to engage. For over 400 years, over 4,800 months, over 146,000 days, there had not been a prophet in Israel since Malachi. For over 400 years, the people of Israel were going about their daily lives of following their annual calendar. 400 plus years of offering sacrifices and offering prayers. 400 years since Malachi made his prophetic utterance. 400 plus years without a prophet of God. 400 plus years of living before the shall. And there he is. John shows up. John the Baptist shows up on the scene as God's divine disruption. He's there among his own people. He's God's interruption for the moment. He is Malachi's messenger. He is the one preparing the way of the Lord. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That eccentric, strangely dressed man. And in this season of Advent, he can also become our interruption. Our personal divine interruption. If we are willing to pause and to listen and to receive his message, While it certainly includes the promise that we shall see the salvation of God, we must also know that it involves our call for us to stand in these moments and engage the present moment in which we live. We cannot read the utterances of Malachi and the utterances of Isaiah and listen to John himself in his sermons and not understand that it is a call to engage this world about us. It is in reality Dare I say it, a call to social justice. You hear it in the heart of Malachi and in the message that he speaks. When he speaks about fair wages, when he speaks about the most vulnerable of his time, widows and orphans, and about the foreigner among them, who have oftentimes become pawns in the hands of our two political parties, not for the sake of them, but for the sake of power and carrying on. God have mercy upon us. For Isaiah, it is the bringing down of mountains, filling up of valleys, the crooked main plain. But these are metaphors. Isaiah perhaps lived east of Jerusalem where the mountains were and where the rough places were and where things were crooked. And God is speaking through his prophet, taking these geographical constructs and using them as metaphors to his people, saying, This is the thing the church is to engage in. Now there is, of course, a fear in the American church, the conservative American church, that seeks to be gospel-centered. We see it only recently in the words of David Jeremiah and others as they signed on to a statement asserting that the entrance of social justice into the church is to the church's detriment. 
we also must recognize that there are those who have so engaged the message of social justice that they have failed to proclaim the essential message of the gospel. And our challenge in this age is to be so grounded in Scripture that we realize that these two things are not diametrically opposed. They are not the perver- but they are rather the proverbial sides of the same call. We are called to engage because we are his body and we share incarnation with him. St. Teresa of Avila was correct when she penned these words, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. We are Christ's body in this world. And he, in his incarnational reality, desires to express his life and his love and his ministry through us, which is more than standing in a pulpit and proclaiming a sermon. It is also out in the streets serving those who are broken and vulnerable and living as victims of injustice. It is to rise up in the message of the gospel and go forth as the light of Christ in this world and as the salt of the world in this age in which we live. That is the challenge for us. To answer this call and to get on our faces before God and say, God, how then shall we live in this age in which we live? A friend of mine who's a retired Presbyterian missionary recently wrote these words for this Advent season. He said, Advent is one of the church's most dense and daunting seasons. It is so much easier to begin Christmas a bit early as Christians do. But by the loving grace of our God, St. Anglican Church, may we lean in to this Advent season, remembering whose we are and what our true calling is. May we find God's grace as we live caught, living before the shall. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.